First Timothy 5 and verse 19. Yeah. As our custom, let's stand and read. Paul's letter to Timothy, he says this, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and therefore share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment for others. Their sins follow after, likewise also. Deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Please be seated. Okay. As we begin in our message this morning, you will notice in continuation from last week a deep concern from Paul over the spiritual leadership in the church of Ephesus. Now the context of Ephesus is very familiar to us now, and we would know why Paul is so concerned. The presence of false teachers there, who are inept and inadequate, or have arisen amongst them, and they're leading the church astray, both doctrinally and in life practice. So for Paul, if the church is going to get back on track, there's going to have to be proper leadership put in place and correctives made. And so the first thing we learned last week that was that elders who ruled well, especially those who worked hard in the ministering of the Word of God, were to be honored. But not just honored, double honored, meaning they were to be respected and financially provided for, so as to make a full-time living. Today, we're going to learn about two more correctives that Paul wanted to ensure proper spiritual leadership in order to bring restoration. So honoring was the first principle from last week. This week we're going to look at discipline, particularly in protecting an elder and rebuking an elder. And we're also going to talk about selection of elders. So the two correctives today are how to properly discipline and how to select proper eldership. Now before I forget, I have a sheet. This sermon is loaded at the end and you will never be able to follow quickly with uh, how much stuff I have. So this is a summary of the sermons. And yeah, if I can get, uh, I'll give you those to Roger, can I get you to hand out these out? Thanks, buddy. It's enough for everybody, so. You can edit the long lag out of here, Kevin. It's important you have the sheet though before I move on, because otherwise it'll be frustrating for you to listen at the same time. Got one okay? All right. Thanks, Yes. 
Okay, so two correctives we're going to learn about today. Church discipline, protecting, rebuking, and selecting. And so we're going to start with the first thing, which is uh, the discipline process, beginning with the idea of protecting an elder. Look at verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, the idea that Paul's stating here that two or three witnesses must be required in order to establish one's guilt is nothing new. It's nothing new. Paul is really adapting a practice that was established by God in the Old Testament. In the Deuteronomy, um, God said this through, through Moses' mouth, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So again, in this letter here, this is nothing new. Deuteronomy affirmed this practice. Jesus also repeated this principle himself when he was teaching the disciples. This Matthew 18 is going to be the main text for us today outside of Timothy. In Matthew 18, um, Jesus said this, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, one your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. In other words, two or three witnesses. Uh, so that the mouth, by the mouth of two or three, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he listens, refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you the Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus furthers Deuteronomy by explaining a bigger, a, a more detailed process um, beyond the church of witnesses because now the church is established. And so it looks different a little bit now. Now I know I'm stating the obvious here, but notice the emphasis in both Deuteronomy and Matthew and Timothy on the word witness. Witness. The accusation that comes against an elder, therefore, was not to be brought forward if it was hearsay. Or if it came from a third party. The only way the church was to receive a charge against an elder is if there was an actual physical witness who either saw or heard the sin. My commentary, uh, well, my favorite commentary um, is by, written by Mounts, this guy named Mounts, his last name. He puts it this way regarding this passage in Deuteronomy, Matthew, and Timothy. He says, The process did not allow for the witnesses to hear a charge from a single person, then bring the matter forward. You understand the difference? So Dave comes to me and goes, or doesn't come to me, he goes to Stuart and says, Hey, you know, uh, you know Rob, Rob's a credible guy. He, he told me something about uh, Stu or something like that. And so Dave goes off to Stu and starts talking to him. That's not how it works because um, this is all hearsay. There has to, in order for, if, for, in order for it to stick with the church looking at a disciplinary process, it has to be that both men saw the issue happen before they can come forward to the church. So this is significant, really significant. The witnesses had to have seen and heard the offense of the accused person for themselves. Now this is an important process and you can see why. This would do what? It would protect the spiritual leader in the church or the elder. It would protect them. It would prevent them from being subject to any malicious gossip or any accusation that was unsubstantiated, which had the potential to destroy that person in some way. So I'm going to give you a hypothetical situation at Genesis House. And this does happen, by the way, at churches. And you might even know stories of this happening. A member of Genesis House who has a really good reputation and has credibility has an axe to grind with me. 
So, Abby, you're a, known as a disturber in the church. I'll pick you. So, Abby, someone of good credibility, good reputation, so all of a sudden doesn't, has an extra gun with me. She wants me to be ruined in some kind of way and ultimately wants me to be removed from being the pastor of Dennis's house. So she comes to the elders of the church, Stuart and Jeff and Roger, and comes to the board, including Callie and Pat, and she says, um, just so you know, Andrew did such and such. Because Abby's credible, and because that nobody in our leadership team has any reason to believe otherwise, because she's never proven to be off her rocker, at least that we know of, <laughs> she, the accusation is believed to be true. And why would you doubt Abby? I mean, she's credible. The elders and the board start to panic, and they wonder how they should handle this. They decide the best thing to do in order to stop the bleed from in the church is to, is to basically act quickly. Act quickly, act hastily, act hurriedly. So they call me in for a private meeting and they tell me I need to be let go. Not only is it for the best interest for the church, uh, it's in the best interest for me as well. Because, um, well, we'll get into that in a second. But the key here is that they would do it quickly and they want to do it quietly. Quiet's important because they don't want to cause any disturbance. Now, because the elders and the board are good, upstanding Christian people, they don't want to leave me empty-handed. So they offer me a severance package. They think, well, it's good for you. It allows you to find the time to get another job. And it also, you can provide for your family this way, too. And you can also avoid public humiliation. But it's also a nice way of trying to muzzle me. Because a severance basically makes me quiet. It's good for the church because, you know, um, no one's of the wiser. And so um, moving quickly and quietly basically is a safeguard for the church. We want to stop the bleed. That's a very typical response. And that's a very likely situation that can occur. Do you know what happens in a situation like this? Six months later, we find out the accusation is not true. <laughs> it's not true. But you know what happened to the church in the meantime, in those six months? I'll tell you what happened to the church. Number one, I leave embittered, embittered against you. And especially the leadership who have never trusted me. I've lost broken, I've lost friendships. Because those of you who judge me quickly, especially in the leadership, who are close to me, um, are gone. Because I, it's too awkward now to hang out. It's just too awkward. I'm also hurt because a lot of you believe the accusation, and it split the church, by the way, because some of you think Andrew could never have done that, and some of you think, oh, he probably could have. So it splits the church. Problem two is because, because I was let go, Oh, so my gossip and my embitterment creates division. But the church also becomes split too because they're bewildered as to what happened and why I was let go so easily. And the church falls into gossip. That's exactly how things happen in this process. And Paul says, I want to protect an elder from this hardship. How do you unscramble those eggs? Six months later, when that's been done, you don't. 
I know there's a verse that says nothing's impossible with God. <laughs> That's pushing God's boundaries there to repair a church in that disrepute. What does Jesus and Paul say to do? What's the corrective? When an accusation comes forward to the church leadership, number one, they're not to receive it. They're not to receive it. They say, you come back when you've got two or three witnesses to prove this is true. But in the meantime, there is something they can do. The church leadership says, according to Matthew 18, there's a step that you can do before we, if you're worried about this, before you have two or three witnesses, there's a step you can take. If your brother sins, go and show him his private fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So, if someone brings, Abby brings an accusation, at the board of the eldership says this to Evie, you go talk to Andrew privately. You go talk to him privately and see if you can win him over. See, if it's hearsay and gossip, she's not going to go talk to me, is she? But if it's legitimate, she is. And the goal is to bring restoration and, and, and repentance in my life. Really powerful, isn't it? See, What's Paul saying here? He's saying, hurry up and wait. <laughs> Be patient. Be patient. Time is your friend in this type of matter. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because the people want to act quickly. They want to protect the church from potential fallout and pain. But Paul says, we've got to protect the spiritual leader. And just in case things... This is an axe to grind. This has no validity whatsoever. So what do you do then when two or more witnesses come forward proving someone's guilt? So I am guilty. How do you do it then? Well, you move to the rebuking stage. And it really depends on the response of the elder. It depends on the response of the elder in the rebuke. First, you need to remember this though. The goal of all spiritual correction is what? To win someone back to the Lord and to produce repentance. See Matthew 18? If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Winning is the goal, not destruction. Keep going. If he does not listen to you, take one or two with you, so that by two or three, every fact I confirm. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So even there, the assumption is at the two or three witness stage, there still can be repentance and correction. So the church doesn't need to know in that stage. Only tell it to the church if, if, um, if there, are, there is no repentance. Again, there's an assumption that the person, even at stage two, will come to be won over. That's always the goal in all the correction. Galatians 6.1 says this, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one as for a gentleness. So you're to win someone, you're to, you're to restore someone. So if the person respect, accepts responsibility in the two or three witness stage, when it's been proven, the church does not need to know about the error of the sin. So if Evie comes and her charge against me is true, and she brings two or three witnesses and it's found to be true, and I repent, the church does not need to know. Because the ultimate goal has been won. What happens if I don't repent? Now it goes public. You see that? 
If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. Look at 1 Timothy verse 20. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest may be fearful of sin. This person in here in verse 20 is persistent. So they've been caught, they've been confronted, they won't repent, and they keep going in their behavior. Now the church is to know, and there's to be a public hearing, in the presence of all, this rebuke of the elder. And and using me as the story, in the story, to be consistent, I come up, and it's a public exposure. But notice the purpose of the public exposure. It's not simply to be informative. Here's some piece of information you might want to know, church. It's not to provide material for you to gossip around the supper table, even though you'll probably talk about it a lot at supper table. Be careful how you speak at supper table when you go to do that. <laughs> the purpose is not gossip. It's so, look at the purpose. So that the rest may be fearful of sinning. The purpose for public exposure of a, a public figure, an elder, is so that the rest of the church, from the leadership to the congregant member, says, I do not want to go through this process of I practice and walk in his footsteps. That's the last thing I want. Some of you introverts don't even like being the center of attention in your own wedding. Walking down the aisle just like paralyzes you because everyone's looking at you. Could you imagine? That's a glorious moment. Could you imagine coming front in the middle of the church to say, by the way, this person has been doing X, Y, and Z, and they're being now, they are unrepentant, un, unrepentant, and so therefore we have to tell you what's going on. Nobody would like to be in that situation, but it's produced fear. So that you go, oh my goodness, I better repent. I better honor the Lord with my life because I don't want to go through that. You know, the New Testament records a situation like this. Some of you might be thinking this already. Do you remember in Galatians chapter 2, between Paul and Peter in Galatians? Here's a situation. Paul is, uh, gets a report that uh, Peter has been in Antioch, and he's been, uh, even though he's a Jesus' right-hand man and was given visions that the Gentiles were clean people and he could eat with them and he could associate with them and he could baptize them and he could minister to them and they were Christians like anyone else. They're free to receive the gospel. Peter is in the city and uh, he had a custom of eating and drinking and fellowshipping with them. But Jewish missionaries show up and he's Jewish. So he starts to get pressure from these Jewish people that he shouldn't be associating with Gentiles. So what does he do? Under the peer pressure of the Jewish people, he stops associating with the very Gentiles he used to sit with. It reminds me of a kindergarten or an elementary school lunchroom. You know, when everyone sits around the table having lunch together and you're all friends and then one day like no one sits with the one kid and you're over on the table by yourself and you go, what just happened here? Where did my friends go? And they're disassociating with you and you don't have no idea why. Or you do know why, but you're ostracized. Peter was doing this. Jesus' right-hand man was doing this. Saying, you are not worthy to sit with and eat with and fellowship with and so on and so forth under the pressure of the Jewish guys. He's an elder who had more hit two or three witnesses. The whole church knew. He was doing it in the presence of the church. There was no secret. So what does Paul do? He rebukes him in the presence of all. Check this out. Verse 11. 
When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in the presence of all, if you being like a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? That's a tongue twister for you. Say that ten times in a row without stumbling. But the point is, is that in the presence of all, Peter receives a rebuke. Now, you can imagine, for Paul, this would have been difficult to do emotionally. Probably had, I bet you his heart was fluttering when he was called to do this. Could you imagine Timothy having to do this in the church? Could you, could you imagine Jeff or Roger or Stu or Pat or Callie, you having to approach me? I don't think you have you probably had a sleepless night the night before knowing that this is going to have to happen in Genesis house. Takes guts, takes commitment to truth, doesn't it? Well, Paul knew this, and so look what he says to Timothy in verse 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his angels to maintain these principles. <laughs> without bias and doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. Wow. I solemnly charge you. You might be wavering, but this is what you do. Yeah, but he's my close friend. This is what you do. Yeah, but I've known him for 15 years. This is what you do. Yeah, but he's been in ministry for 25 years and shown no faults up until this point. This is what you do. You're not partial. There's no bias. It's not just a a human matter. It's a heavenly one. You know, in verse 21, this, 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 this emphasis on the presence of God in Christ Jesus and the angels is repeated in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I solemnly charge you. There you go again. In the presence of God of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Notice the, notice the context there. Who is God in Christ Jesus in this? The judge. The judge. The angels in Matthew are part of the judgment in uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. So he doesn't talk about angels there, but we know they're part of the judgment. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you're not going to want to do this. But God's court is in session. The judge is there. This is no human matter. This is a the heavenly tribunal has showed up. You're accountable to him. You do this. Okay. That's the process of dealing with discipline, of protecting and rebuking elders. And this process, too, would go to the members of the church as well. There's nothing different between elders and members of the congregation. If you're thinking there's a two-step process, it's identical. How do you select elders? Verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Once again, we see the principle we just uncovered in the process of church discipline. Or protection, I should say. 
It's the principle of patience. The principle of hurry up and wait. You're not to lay hands on anyone for leadership too quickly. Now the significance of laying on of hands, of course, is that it's an outward sign that you're personally identifying with and commissioning someone to ministry. And you're saying, I think they have the goods to do this job. Timothy received this from Paul in chapter 4, verse 14. I'll read it to you. It says here, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of my hands. So Timothy had his hands laid on when he was commissioned to, to oversee um, or to join him in his missionary journeys. So the laying on of hands, of course, was something where you were basically saying, I approve of this person. Now, he does say here not to do it quickly, but then he says, here's why. Because if you do it too quickly, you might share in responsibility for the sins of others. He was to keep himself pure. What does that mean? Well, there's two options. First, he's telling Timothy not to get involved in the kinds of sins that the false teachers are wrapped up in. So don't repeat their kind of behavior. But I would suggest the second one is more appropriate for the context. He was to avoid guilt by association. He was to avoid guilt by association. How does this work? Well, again, if a guy, if you, if you, if a guy is not cut out for ministry, but he looks good in the, in the interview, and the references check out, and you point him in, and later on you find out that his character is all goofy, and things go sideways, he says, you share in the responsibility of that sin, because you put your hand in a stamp of approval over this guy, and he should never have been there in the first place. So yes, he's still accountable to God for his own actions, but you as a leadership group didn't take the time. You were in a hurry to get things done. You rushed and rushed and had no idea. You know the Alabama song? <laughs> you were doing, you're living the Alabama's theme song instead of the, the biblical process, and you got hurt in the process. The context especially supports that in verse 24. He says, The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Paul's point is this. There are some aspects of people's characters, for the better or worse, that are evident immediately. You know right away whether they've got their good, their good works or they've got sin in their life. Immediately. So you know what you're getting into. But for others, he says, it's not the case. You don't know if you've got a guy who's got sin in his life immediately, or he's got good works yet. So he might even present kind of poor at first, but all of a sudden, over time, reveal this tremendous character. So it's a, it's a, it's a balance scale on both sides. Either way, if Timothy was going to do everything in his power to ensure godly leadership, we see the principle once again in play. Hurry up and wait. Be patient. Give time for sin to show. Give time for good works to show. Sometimes they'll show immediately, but that's not always the case. Wait for sin to be revealed. Wait for good works to be, that were originally hidden to emerge. Now this is totally in line with his previous teaching in the letter. Remember chapter 3, 6 and the qualifications for eldership? Elders are not to be recent converts. Elders, oh sorry, deacons in chapter 3, verse 10 are to undergo a period of testing. I'll jog your memory back to about three, four months ago. The whole purpose was to be patient in selecting elders, to secure men of proven character for leadership in the church, 
And when the problem sets in that you're hurried, sorry, when you're hurried, problems can potentially set in. I'm going to tell you a true story and that God's amazing with me in terms of giving me material because sometimes I'm like, I don't know, Lord, how this applies. I don't always know how it works. Last week, I meet a guy that doesn't come to our church. He didn't even know I was preaching on this. And he says, can I tell you a story about one of what's happening in the church of one of my friends? I got a phone call. He wanted me to weigh in and give my opinion on this. True story. You tell me if the Bible's not relevant 2,000 years later. <laughs> True story. Former youth pastor decides to quit his job in a church. He wants to pursue further education. Nothing wrong with that. Okay? The church wants to appoint someone to replace him. It's not a big church. It's not an urban church. It's a rural, rural one. And so it's kind of on the small, small scale. You know, it's a Genesis house. It's Genesis house in terms of small scale. Okay? But it's kind of like, again, it's sort of in the, in the boonies a little bit. It's not sort of easily accessible like we are. So they want to get someone in to replace this youth pastor pretty quickly, but they know they're in a pretty tough predicament because it's not the most favorable place to necessarily go for ministry. They uh, receive some reference letters. Oh, they, get, they start looking, and some reference uh, people start applying, and reference, they do some reference checks on this one particular individual, and they make some phone calls and do some video uh, interviews. So video interviews, reference checks, and phone calls. And I'm not sure if they got to see him in person or not. I, I can't remember. I didn't get that detail. But definitely the other things were in place. Letters, references, you know, phone calls, videos, and so on. They hired him immediately. Okay? The week he started, and this is quote-unquote day one of walking in the building, he orders himself a brand new laptop. The lead pastor happened to be on vacation when he did that. They find out later, and the laptop he ordered was incompatible with all the software that they use at that church because they run a different set of, uh, set of systems. But he ordered like, like an expensive one, and something like over a thousand bucks in terms of like bill. That's day one. So it sets of entitlement, if you want to put a word on it. Then he started demonstrating a spirit of lack of self-control. He was consistently late for work and took unusual amounts of sick days. He had a spirit of pride. He had, uh, in every denomination, well, I shouldn't say that. I know at least two denominations, from ours specifically, and obviously with his, because every denomination is slightly different in their, in their nuances, you often go through an ordination process. So even though you're ordained, say through, uh, maybe you go ordained, try to say, through school, you still have to get ordained sort of in that denomination. So this guy was educated, and um, he, the, the denomination says, I want you to go through our ordination process, just go through these little things so that you can become appointed in our congregation. During the whole time he had a spirit of pride, he was angry to the fact that they were quote-unquote questioning him and uh, making him feel like he was personally attacked on his validity as a leader. The church realized they had to let him go, and they finally were able to do so. But you know how they did it? They attributed, the majority of the, 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 the letting of him go was attributed to struggling finances. They blamed it on the struggling economic situation that Canada finds itself in, because not every place is doing well, and says, we can't afford to keep you on anymore in this position. 
One of the board members said this, you actually, just so you know, you don't actually ever fire people in ministry. You never do that. You never fire one of God's workers. That was his attitude. So, guess what happened? When the pastor left, he engaged in a smear campaign against the church. No kidding. No kidding. And the church is, as you can imagine, going through some issues right now. You know what Paul's word to the, this church is? Based on verse 22. Do not lay hands on anyone too hastily and thereby, thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. A.K.A. church, board members, leadership. It's your own fault. It's your own fault. You didn't follow the biblical mandate. So why do we hurry? If we know the scriptures, why do we hurry? Well, you're a big, thriving church. Ministry's going amazing. Uh, you know, people are coming to Christ. Things are going up. Like, you can't ask for a better season of life in the, in, the, in, the, in the life of the community. And the head guy, or one of the elders, gets really sick. And all of a sudden has to, for the family reasons, like exit the, the ministry and he's gone in a month. You don't want to lose the impetus. The church is doing so well. We've got to get someone in quickly to replace this guy. We don't want to lose momentum. You're a small church and you're dying. You, you, you need to put a band-aid on this thing and stop the bleed. So you want someone quickly that can, who's impressive in an interview so that you can stop the bleed. And you're impressed by his references. Listen, references for the majority of time are not worth the ink the paper's written on. You want to know why? Hands up, how many of you ever given a reference for a job and put the three people you knew that didn't like you on it? How many of you who've had jobs, who have maybe tension with the boss, have you put their names as your references for your job interview? No one. You put the people that you know are going to give you glowing reports, and if they do say one sad thing, they've got a way of wording it to make it like palatable to the person hiring you. Let's be honest. That's what you put on, the, on your resume. Sometimes you hire people that think like you theologically. Man, that guy's amazing. Like, we're a church that doesn't believe in the whole Pentecostal uh, crazy charismatic gift movement, if, you, if that's what you think. And, and we don't want to be like that. And so uh, this guy thinks exactly like me. And so, man, doctrinally, he's perfect. Doctrinally, even if he is perfect, his character might be worth nothing. But this be, like, flawed, like, unbelievable. Tardiness for work, uh, pride, self-entitlement. Means nothing. The elders' qualifications, remember this? What were they full of? I think there was 21 or 22. Only one was theological. Teach the Bible. The rest were character. You can train people to understand the Bible. To get people to break habits in their personal life and character takes years. Sometimes never, depending on the individual and how badly they want to honor the Lord with their lives in these particular areas. Sometimes churches are impressed with business people. He says, successful businessmen. And the guy's like a millionaire. 
and he's so funny, he's got a great sense of humor. He'd be an amazing guy for our church, and he's put into leadership. And next week, we're going to learn about the love, uh, be careful about riches and the, the root of all sorts of evil. Our goal in church planting in Genesis House is this. As much as we can, we want to hire and move on with someone homegrown. Homegrown. That's our goal. And if we can't find someone homegrown, we're going to go through a thorough, 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 slow process to hire someone to take the church in the future. But homegrown's preference, you know why? No pressure when I call out your name just for fun, but Rob, <laughs> you want to be a church planner one day. I've known you for, let's say, you know, that's eight years down the road. Well, I've known you for 15 years. You're not going to probably surprise me with their character. We've gone camping, we've hung out at a coffee shop, we've played as families together. You're not going to surprise me. If you've been late for every meeting for 15 years and I hire you as a pastor, I know you're probably going to be late for 15 years for every appointment we go for discipleship. But at least I know. <laughs> Let's finish with verse 23. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. How does this seemingly strange verse fit in here? And why is it located in this position at this point in the passage? You ready for my rich theological scholarly answer? I don't know. I don't know. If you know, please tell me. Because I read through the commentaries and I, and I listened to their arguments and I had a, there was always a pushback, whatever they thought. If you want those options, I can give them to you in dialogue or in private coffee. But I realized something. It doesn't actually, it's probably not that important to know why it's here necessarily at this place. Because you learn one principle, actually a couple principles from this passage. Number one, Timothy had chosen a life of abstinence in alcohol. How do we know? He says, no longer drink water exclusively. But you can use bread, you can use bread, you can use wine. So he thought in his life, in his current ministry, in Ephesus, under the current situation, abstinence was the right way to lead the church spiritually. He felt that was right based on that. Observation number one. Observation number two. You know what's amazing? Paul cuts right through that and says, not necessary, Timothy. Unnecessary. Your health, your physical health as a pastor matters more to me than whatever your reasons were for choosing abstinence. <laughs> Catch that? No longer drink wine exclusively. Don't be abstinent. Take a little wine, Timothy. Take a little wine for the sake of your health. What do you learn from Paul there? He's not only concerned about protecting elders, rebuking elders, selecting elders, honoring elders. He cares about the health of a pastor, an elder. Of course he does. It's a hard job. It's so mentally and emotionally like taxing at times. And physically can be draining too. You want someone healthy in the ministry. 
that can sustain a long period of time. It doesn't just fatigue like in a, like two seconds from a little bit of work. Someone that can persevere and doesn't always worry about their health as the reason why they can't meet someone or can't go over for coffee or can't do the extra hours that are required or can't stay up late and prefer to prepare those messages, whatever it may be. That last minute, uh, you know, emergency phone call. He needs somebody healthy in the ministry and he cares about his body. That's the thing that I want you to notice in this passage. All right. So what do we learn? Number one, pull out your sheet. This goes from last week. Starts with last week's sermon. Ensuring healthy spiritual leadership. Number one, make sure your elders are doubly honored. Who, meaning, they're respected and financially taken care of so as to make a full-time living. If an elder can still be an elder in a church who's not wanting to do a full-time living, but they still need to be honored, respected, and we pay people to preach when they preach here. But the double honor was, the idea was respect and be financially taken care of so as to make a full-time living. Number two, an elder is to be protected. How do you do that? The church should never accept an accusation that cannot be properly witnessed. Number two, if there's only one witness, the individual must be willing to go and speak to the elder individually or else the issue stops there. It's done. Fine. Next, they need to be rebuked if, if witnesses can be established. If proper witnesses can establish guilt, the elder is to be dealt with privately with the goal of repentance and restoration. That's Matthew 18. Verse 15, the first sentence in that passage. If repentance occurs, the sin is resolved, and the church does not need to know about it. It's done with. It's private. Two, if there's no repentance, the church needs to be told in order to produce a healthy fear in the people. If the elder repents after the public exposure, then restoration can be made. However, wisdom needs to be exercised in how and when someone continues the ministry. And I added that component. didn't talk about it in the sermon. Here's the thing. You may, like, depending on the severity of the sin, right? Like, some things, um, I wouldn't just put someone back in ministry necessarily day one just because they've now repented after two or three witnesses come forward. There might be a time in which wisdom needs to be required where they need to take a period of leave of absence or serve a different capacity. But the idea is to reinstate, but we need to show time to show fruits of repentance and show wisdom. Next, if an elder doesn't repent after the public rebuke, they're removed entirely from leadership. If he refuses to listen to even the church, let him to you be as a Gentile and tax collector. Treated as a non-Christian. The key principle in all this discipline, the church must take pains to be sure that they execute justice without bias or partiality. Number two, remember God is watching you and you're accountable to Him. How do you select elders? In appointing elders, one must be patient. I should be moving forward. Sorry, guys. Uh, I don't matter. You guys have the sheet anyway. I'll keep it on Matthew 18. In appointing elders, one must be patient and take the time to evaluate one's character. That's key. If one fails to do... So, and the elder proves over time to be unfit for ministry, those who appointed the elder share the responsibility of their sin. You're guilty by association. 
Paul's overall message, hurry up and wait. You be patient. That's the message. Amen. If you don't have anything to say in this dialogue, I'll be shocked. <laughs> your brains must be absolutely thinking about scenarios and rehearsing things in your mind that you've seen and experienced. I know mine did this week.